One of my classes at, at Randall University when I was in Bible college, they assigned us to read a book by a guy named David F. Wells, Dr. David Wells. The book was called God in the Wasteland. The book overall was a good book, very challenging. One of the comments Dr. Wells made in that book, something that has stuck with me through the years. If you've been at our church very long, you've probably heard me read this quote before. But he said, it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean that he is ethereal, but rather he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticed. Now, that would seem like a harsh statement if the world around us did not constantly demonstrate the truth and the accuracy of that statement. Well, the number of Americans who classify themselves as atheists is growing. The majority of Americans still claim to believe in a divine being of some sort. Of those who claim to believe in a divine being of some sort, still the majority of those claim to believe in the God of the Bible. And of those who claim to believe in a divine being and would say they believe in the God of the Bible, many of those would even say they are born-again Christians. Now, despite these claims, Dr. Wells says the vast majority of people, including those who would profess to be born-again Christians, consider God less interesting than the television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And His truths less less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. This, he says, is weightlessness. Dr. Wells convincingly argues one of the reasons God has become weightless on our culture is because we have caged or we have tamed the God of the Bible. He gives several characteristics of the tamed God. The tamed God is a God who exists to meet our needs instead of our existing to serve Him. Think of how few people who profess to believe in God see Him as the sovereign ruler of the universe. Not just the sovereign ruler of the universe out there, but the sovereign ruler of of their universe. Right? He exists to meet needs But he's not one to whom anyone should surrender their rights to everything in their life. The the tamed God is a God who can become indebted to us. Instead of the holy God against whom we have all sinned. And his every act of kindness toward us is mercy and grace, but never merit or debt. We see this. In those who turn against God when things become hard in their lives. Because in their mind, God has failed them. To their way of thinking, they kept their end of the bargain and God is the one who dropped the ball. And as long as they keep their end of the bargain, God owes them a life basically free of trials and hardships. The caged God exists to help us in our time of need, but make no inconvenient demands on our lives. This is most clearly seen by those who take no thought of God during the good times of their lives, but become somewhat devoted to Him when life becomes difficult. Which would be great, except their devotion to God only lasts so long as the hard time does. Once the hard time goes away and life goes back to normal, they go back to paying no heed, no thought to God. Now the sad fact is, these sorts of views are almost as common within the church of Jesus Christ as they are outside the church. Many professing believers today live as what one pastor called Christian atheists. And a Christian atheist, according to him, is someone who claims to believe in God, the God of the Bible, and yet lives as though the God does not exist. Now, this doesn't mean they live wicked, sinful lives, though they can. It just means they live and they take no thought to God. God bears no, God's will, God's want, and God's word bears no weight upon their lives. When it comes to making a decision, they don't say, I wonder what God would have me to do. If something, an opportunity arises, they don't consult the seed. Is it contrary to Scripture? Virtually nothing is their life. It is guided by God's will, God's want, or God's word. For these people, the Bible is often seen as the inspired word of God. and is to be highly esteemed. 
Most often, these sort of people will treat their Bible with sort of reverence and respect and keep them in places of, of honor in their homes. Right? You won't find their Bible propping up a table or they won't set a drink on it. They will treat it with respect. They will have it in a place of honor. They will prominently display it. But they don't read it. They don't ever open it. They don't study it for themselves. They don't really know what it says. Yes, this is the Word of God and I believe it. What does it say about this? Well, I really don't know. Never thought about it. I don't, I've never looked into it. With their mouths they profess to believe in God, but with their lives they demonstrate He bears no weight upon their lives. With their mouths they profess the Bible to be the Word of God, but with their lives they demonstrate it bears no weight upon their lives. This attitude towards God's Word is an extension of their attitude toward God Himself. And as we get into Revelation, what we see is this is a dangerous, a deadly, dangerous attitude to have. Open your Bible to Revelation 13 if you haven't already. should be on page 956 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten crowns. And on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave him power and his throne and his authority. And I saw one of the heads as if it had been fatally wounded. And his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like unto the beast and who is able to wage war with him? A mouth was given to him speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. It is also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe and people and language and nation. All who live on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who had been slaughtered. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who live on it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even he, he even makes fire come down out of the sky to the earth in the presence of the people. And he deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs which was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword that had come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause all who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. And he decrees that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark. Either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who understand, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For his number is that of a man and his number is six hundred and sixty six. Title of the message this morning is, Do Not Be Misled. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. We come and we bow in your presence and we surrender this time to you. Father, I, I am thankful for those that have gathered today. We all have other things we could be doing. We all have other things that are going on in our lives. We have taken this time and given it to you. Father, though it's but a small amount of time, it is yours. Have your way. Give us ears to hear what you have for us today. 
Let your Holy Spirit take your word and use it like a sword to challenge us and convict us where we need to be convicted. Let your Holy Spirit take your word and use it like a hammer to smash strongholds we have erected in our minds so our thoughts can be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Let your Spirit take your word and use it like a light to dispel darkness in our minds that, that we would see the glory of Jesus. Let your Spirit take your word and use it to plow up the fallow ground of our heart. Your word would sink deep in and bring forth good fruit for your glory. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you once said. Father, we need you today to to guide us. Deception, in the end, affects pretty well everyone. Deception now affects so very many. Help us to understand the danger of this, what we need to do to ensure we are not part of the deceived, we ask in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. I have a a confession. We aren't going to really dig into Revelation 13 this morning. We'll be in it next week, verses 1 through 10, looking at the Antichrist. As I was studying the passage this week, there was one one thought kept hammering away in my mind, kept kept bothering me. Look at verse 8. All who live on the earth will worship Him, the, the, the beast, the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of life. Look at verse 13. He performs great signs so that He even makes fire come down out of the sky to the earth in the presence of the people and He deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs which was given to Him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound. Then He tells Him to go on and, and worship the beast. The Antichrist, the, the prophet of the Antichrist, will both be empowered by Satan to do all kinds of signs and wonders. The people of the earth at this time are going to eat this up and they're going to begin to worship the beast and, and thus the dragon who is Satan who gives the beast this kind of power. They don't worship him as a man. They worship him because they've been misled into thinking he is God. Not a God, but the God. Not even just Yahweh, but Yahweh and Allah and Vishnu and and any God that has ever been. The Antichrist convinces everyone all refer to him. And everyone goes for it. They all begin to worship him. Now, Jesus, when he taught on the end times, he warned us about this kind of deception. When he taught in Matthew 24, which goes along with so much of Revelation, he said, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many people. He also said, if anyone says to you, behold, there, here is the Christ, or he's over there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise. And provide great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the very elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. One of the most common things Jesus talks about when he talks about the end times is the need to not be misled, not to be deceived. So why are the people deceived when Jesus has told us about it beforehand? Why are they misled? Well, look again at verse 8. They will worship him. Because their name has not been written in the book of the Lamb. Their names are not written in the book of life. Essentially what it's saying is they worship the beast. They're deceived because they're not saved. Those who believe the Antichrist deceptions are those who have never repented of their sins, believed in Jesus Christ, and genuinely been born again. Now... This is a fulfillment of a a warning the Apostle Paul gives us. He talks about the the, the Antichrist's coming. His coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with power and false signs and wonders, which we kind of looked at a little bit here. With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Now why? Here's the deal. Why do they perish? Why do they fall for the deception of wickedness? Because they did not accept the love of the truth so as to be saved. They did not 
accept the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now, there's an awful lot about that I would like to say about the end, and I probably will in the coming weeks. But understand the key thought with this. Those who do not embrace God's word and God's son are open to being deceived by the Antichrist, by the devil, and being led astray. Now you think, well, okay, that's then, but what about now? Well, I think when we look at today and we see people are clearly deceived and have these wrong ideas about who Jesus is and who God is and what God is like, this, all of this plays into today as well. Right? Everything we're seeing in Revelation 13, it is about the end, to be sure. But it has a, a, an application for us today. While what we see in Revelation 13 pertains, I, I do believe, to a, a specific legitimate person who, who rises up at the end. There is also an element of symbolism here. Representing the opposition to Jesus and his church throughout history. This is an important aspect for us to understand as we look at the book of Revelation. Particularly this chapter about people being deceived. Deception about Jesus and salvation and eternity is not limited to the end times. It is very present now. And we're, again, we're warned about this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Notice, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming but now it's already at work in the world. The Antichrist is coming. But the spirit of the Antichrist has been at work in the world since the days of the Apostle John. I'm sure deception about Jesus and salvation and eternity isn't limited to the end times because the spirit of the Antichrist is at work today in the world around us. Chances are we know people, we see it online, who have strange beliefs. They believe things and when you hear them talk about what they believe, you you. And I don't mean to be flippant with it, but it sounds like it's from bizarro world. How how could you believe something so clearly aberrant? So something so I mean, just you can look and see that's not real. That's not true. How can you say I'm a believer in Jesus and yet reject huge portions of what God has revealed about Jesus and, and go along with it? How does that happen? It's because they're deceived. By the spirit of the Antichrist who is at work in them at this moment. But what we've got to understand is the spirit of the Antichrist isn't just working in unbelievers out there in faraway places. Leading them to worship strange and unusual gods. The spirit of the Antichrist is at work in our community. Is at work in our town. Is at work in our country. And if we're not careful, he will be at work in us. The people Jesus warns not to be misled are not random unbelievers who have come to him to hear what he has to say. He is warning his disciples, you don't be misled. You don't be led astray. Dear friend, you and I, if we are not careful, could easily. Be misled. And if you think, well, I could never be misled, my, I suggest to you, you may already be misled. So how do we keep from being misled? I want to give you two, two things, two actions we have to take. First is submit to the authority of God's Word. God's word is given to us to be the final rule and authority for all things of faith and practice and life. 
Who is Jesus? What is He like? What is salvation? Who is saved? How can one be saved? What happens to those who aren't saved? Those answers come from here. They are meant to come from God's Word. So what does it look like? Because, again, for those that are out today, most of us would say, yes, the Bible is God's Word. It is the Word of God. Yes, I submit to the authority of God's Word. But on a practical level, what does it look like for God's Word to be the authority in my life? Well, we're told all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. This is like the quintessential passage on God's Word. And it teaches us that it is beneficial and profitable for, for teaching, or doctrine, rebuke, correction, training in righteousness. So if God's Word is the authority in my life, what do I do? How do I live my daily life? Well, number one, we submit our doctrine to God's Word. Right? The word that's used for teaching there, it, it doesn't mean just like you're getting up to talk. It refers to the content of the teaching, the, the doctrine that's being taught. So God wants us to know who He is and what He's like. God wants us to know about mankind, humanity. Why is humanity at times so very evil? Why is the world so broken? How did we get to this place? Why is Jesus the only way? Is Jesus the only way? How can someone come to Jesus and be saved? These truths and more are not hidden. We, we don't need any sort of secret code. All of this has been given to us right here in God's Word. And so what it means for God's Word to be the authority in my life is when I say, here's what Jesus is like, I take it from here. When I say here is about salvation, we, we take it from here. Now this is... Incredibly important. Because culture often contradicts what God has revealed about himself, about salvation and about Jesus and about eternity. The world will often tell us we can't know God. If there is a God, he is unknowable and not concerned and vast and far beyond our reach. The world often tells us people are basically good. And their main problem is a lack of resources and education. The world often tells us all religions are either equally true or equally false, but no one religion has a, a hold on truth. The world often tells us so long as we aren't hurting anyone else, no one has any right to tell us what's right or what's wrong about the life we choose to live. And each of those ideas is contrary to what God has said in His Word. God has spoken clearly about all of those things. So the question you and I have to answer, what will we do when what culture teaches us is different than what God teaches us? When culture says all humans are basically good, and you have to do something really bad to go to hell. Otherwise, you go to heaven. And God's Word says all of sin comes short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Lest you repent, you shall likewise perish. What will we believe? Which will we choose as truth? What culture says or what God's Word says? When culture says Jesus was just an enlightened person. Who kind of had a knowledge of things, but wasn't the Christ, the Son of God. And the Word of God says He is the Christ, the Son of God. Which are we going to believe? And we're going to be confronted with these sorts of ideas all the time. We all know people who have aberrant ideas about humanity. Where we came from, what we're like, how the reason the world is broken. And how to fix it. God's Word has a different way. What are we going to believe? Are we willing to be out of step with culture, to be in step with God's Word? Or 
Are we going to say, culture is my authority, and I'm going to go along with everyone else? See, if God's word is the authority in my life, then no matter what culture says about who Jesus is, what God's like, salvation, any of these things, we take God's word as fact and as truth over everything culture may say. As a very practical way. Secondly, we not only submit our doctrine to God's word when God's word is the authority, but we submit to the rebuke of God's word, right? So it's inspired and beneficial for teaching and for rebuke. Rebuke means to show us what's wrong. So there are going to be times if you read your word, you're going to be in the word and you're going to believe something. And God's word is going to tell you something else. And it's trying to correct you. It's trying to rebuke you. It's saying you believe wrong and this is right. Or you're going to be reading it and and you're going to be doing something and it's going to say, don't do that. Or you're going to not be doing something and it's going to say, you must do that. So in that time happens, what will we do? What will we do when God's word rebukes us? Will we go on living the way we've been living, believing what we've been believing? Or will we turn to Jesus with confession and repentance, acknowledge we have been wrong and God's word has been right? Now, that's easy enough to say so long as it's not actually rebuking us. But what if it's some deeply cherished belief we have? Grandmama taught us this was true. And it's not. What if it's an action we really enjoy taking? And God's word says explicitly, thou shalt not. What are we going to do? Well, if God's word's the authority in my life, I'm going to accept that rebuke. I'm going to submit to that rebuke. And I'm going to turn to Jesus away from God, what God's word is rebuking me about. And any other response shows something other than God's word is the authority in my life. Now, Not only if God's word is the authority, we submit our doctrine and submit to the rebuke, but we submit to the correction from God's word. God's word doesn't just tell us what's wrong. It actually points out what to do that's right. So we believe something wrong. God's word says that belief is wrong. Believe this instead. We are doing something wrong. And God's word says, don't do that. Do this instead. God's word not only says you're wrong. But it shows us how to fix the change. Correction implies change. Changing our wrong thinking or our wrong ideas. Now, again, this one is tough because God can and will often use his word to correct and change areas of our lives we don't want to change. He can change in the area of relationships we have. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we raise our kids, what we watch on TV, the way we talk and what we're going to do with our lives. You can take any area of life and God's word will speak to it and say, you're wrong here. Fix it by doing this instead. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do when God uses his word to correct the way we think, the way we live, what we have planned? Will we keep going in the way we are? Or will we make the changes God has shown us from his word? We demonstrate God's word is the authority in our lives when we make the changes God's word reveals to us. Any other response demonstrates something other than God's word is the authority in our lives. So we submit to doctrine. We submit to the rebuke, the correction. And we submit to being trained by God's word. Right? It is profitable for training in righteousness. Through God's word, through all of those things we've seen, we get our doctrine from it, we accept the rebuke from it, we change with it. And in doing this, God's word is training us to be righteous, to live righteous, to have righteous relationships, react to stressors in righteous ways, to just be righteous in all of life. Now again though, God's idea of righteous and the world's idea of righteous are not even the same. Even close. The world teaches we are righteous by nature. God's word says we are unrighteous by nature. The world teaches we can live righteous by being a good person. But God teaches, God's word teaches, 
We can only live righteous after Jesus has made us righteous. The world teaches our good deeds make us righteous. God's word teaches our good deeds apart from Jesus are like filthy rags. The world teaches righteous relationships or any mutually pleasing relationships. But God's word teaches there are some relationships we cannot have. And there are some actions within a relationship we cannot take apart from being married. The world teaches we are to blast anyone who disagrees with us. God's word teaches we are to be peacemakers and to be merciful. So what will we do when our idea of righteousness we've received from the world clashes with the idea of righteousness given in God's word? Will we keep on following the ways of the world and live the world's righteousness? Or will we take our doctrine from God's word? That's what righteousness is. Submit to the rebuke from God's word. We're not righteous. And then submit to the correction from God's word and change to do what God's word says is righteous. Anything other than submitting to God's word and making those changes shows something other than God's word is the authority in our lives. And to me, I think this is really helpful because it's all very practical. See, God's word being the authority in our lives, it, it's not as much a matter of I have God's word upon my bookshelf at the house. I love God's word. It's beautiful. I love it. I, I just want to feel like it. It's the authority. I, I follow it. I believe it. I love it. Well, what do you believe about Jesus? Oh, I, I just kind of believe this. No, no. This is the authority. This is where your belief about Jesus has to come from. And if your belief about Jesus doesn't come from here, then you need to be rebuked by God's word. You need to change to conflict with God, to be in accordance with God's word and let that train you to righteousness. And if you don't, God's word isn't the authority. I mean, it is. That can sound simplistic. How do I show God's word is the authority in my life? I do what it says. I believe what it says to believe. I reject what it says to reject. I act the way it tells me to act. I love who it tells me to love. I treat people the way it tells me to treat people. Anything else, any other way we act or do or be, shows something other than God's word is the authority in our lives. And, and there, there really is no other question more fundamental to our lives than what will be the authority for our lives. Now, if we are disciples of Jesus, Jesus has given us the answer about what should be the authority in our lives. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, where he said that we are to, to be doers of his word, right? We're to build our lives on the foundation of his word. Those who hear his word and do it are what? Wise people. Who build their house on a rock. And when the storms come. And the winds blow. And the floods rage. That house stays. But if we don't do that. The winds come. The rains come. The floods come. And the house collapses. To, to, to paraphrase that and put it in the context of Revelation 13. Those who are wise and build their life on God's word. When the deception of the spirit of the Antichrist comes, they recognize it as error and they reject it. And they stay faithful to Christ. But those who do not build their lives on God's word, when the deception from the Antichrist comes, they buy into it. And they are led astray. And great is the destruction that comes into their house. Jesus modeled this as truth. When he was being tempted by Satan. How did he respond to Satan's temptation during the 40 days in the wilderness? He didn't say, well, the scribes and the Pharisees say. He didn't say, well, I kind of feel. Well, I think. Everybody else around me. He says, it, it is written. It is written. It is written. Jesus has modeled for us. How to resist the spirit of the Antichrist so we aren't misled. It's by building our life on the word. It's by knowing the word. Surrendering to the authority of the word. Once we surrender to the authority of God's word. Then we need to study to know God's word. Right? Because submitting to the authority of God's word is only the first step. The second step is to study to know what God's word actually says. 
years ago, I talked to a guy. And he was a uh, Jehovah's Witness. But he wasn't when he came to America. He's from some other country. And when he came here, he wasn't a Jehovah's Witness. He was kind of a, he was a Catholic, I think, at that time. And he, he wanted to be a part of an American church. And so he came here and he got a job at the hospital. And he began to talk to people at the hospital who were professing Christians. And he began to ask them, what do you believe? And they would tell him, here's what I believe. And he had a Bible and he would say, Where, where's that at? I mean, I, I, don't, I, I really don't know anything. Can you show me where the Bible says what you're saying? And they couldn't. They couldn't. They, well, the preacher said it. I heard it in Sunday school. They, they could not open a Bible and show them Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. That they couldn't open the Bible and show that unless you're born again, you don't have a part in the kingdom of God. They, they couldn't. They couldn't open their Bible and point to anything they truly believed as real and right and true. And, and then one day, a Jehovah's Witness came to his door. I don't know if you ever had a Jehovah's Witness give you their presentation. It's pretty slick. They, I mean, they've got it worked out. You're looking at our magazine. Well, look, this is right here in the Bible, right here. Now look at our magazine here. Now look at our Bible right there. He was awed. Finally, a disciple of Jesus knew what the Bible said and where it said it at. And so he joined with them. Which is sad. Because disciples of or the Jehovah's Witness are not disciples of Jesus. They are people who are influenced by the spirit of the Antichrist and who believe wrong things. And the reason he ended there was because many people he worked with who professed faith in Jesus, did not know their Bible. They fully submitted to the authority of God's Word. If you would have asked them, is the Bible the inspired Word of God? They would have said, yeah. Jesus die and rise again? Absolutely. Is Jesus the only way to salvation? Yes, He is. Heaven, hell, both real? Absolutely. Where's any of that in the Bible? Somewhere in here, I'm sure. I don't know. And because of that, they weren't able to help. A man was led astray. And led to hell lest the Lord intervenes. It's wonderful to submit to the authority of God's word. We have to start there. That's not where it ends. Then we have to study God's word to know what it says. See, knowing God's word isn't the job of the pastor only. Every disciple of Jesus is meant to be a student of the word of God. This isn't my opinion. This is the word of God. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handling word of truth. Four facets I want to point out. And we'll be quick at this point. Be diligent. The word for diligent, it means to make every effort, to do one's best, to work hard, to give all diligence, to be zealous, to eagerly strive, to exert oneself to make haste. The Greek word used there means all of those things. So that's what we're to be. We're to be diligent, zealous, to eagerly strive, to give our best, to work hard, to exert ourselves. For what point? Well, we're to do it as workers, right? So all of this is work. It's to be, we're to work at something, but what are we to, to work at? Being able to accurately handle the word of truth. So we, this is your calling as a disciple of Jesus. This is my calling. This, this isn't me because I'm a pastor. If you have repented of your sins and you have believed in Jesus Christ, the word of God calls you to be diligent, to make every effort, to labor to do your best, to work hard, to give all diligence, to be zealous, to eagerly strive, to exert yourself so you can be a worker who can accurately handle the Word of God and not be ashamed when someone says, why do you believe Jesus is the only way? I mean, that's that's the point. When someone says, why do you believe what you believe? Well, that's what I've always believed. That's what they taught me in Sunday school. That's what mom and dad said. Well, where's that at in the Bible? I don't know. At that point, we ought to be ashamed. And to prevent that from happening, there is 
We don't have to go to Bible college. We don't have to, to do anything hard. Legitimately, all we have to do is study the Word. In fact, some translations, actually, we use the word diligent. They're translated as study. Study. As Americans, we are exceedingly blessed when it comes to God's Word. All it takes for us to study God's Word is to pick up our personal copy of it. I mean, how many of us? I have, I have this one. I just got it about a couple of months ago. And then I have like five more. Like five in this office, five at my study at the house. How many of us have more than one copy of the Bible? A physical copy of God's Word we can hold in our hands. Do, do we even realize the miracle that is? I mean... There are entire countries with multiple people groups where the Bible is not in their language. They, they cannot pick it up and say there, there are no Bibles in their country, in their language. It doesn't even exist. They're down through history, having a Bible in your hand is not something every disciple of Jesus has been able to do down through the years. But we have that. And, and, of course, if you notice when Jeff came up to read, Jeff didn't have a personal copy like this, did he? He had his, he had his phone. Why? Because not only do we have personal copies, we have high-speed devices. And through these high-speed devices, we can download apps that have every translation of the Bible known to man on there. Was that you version you read from, Jeff? What translation? NIV. If he wanted to, he could use the New American Standard, like I have, because it's on there. If he wanted to try to learn Spanish and read from a Spanish Bible, there are like four Spanish Bibles. He could read a Portuguese Bible, which may not be helpful. But the reality is, in the palm of our hands, with those devices, we have every copy, every translation of the Bible in existence today. Every from the original King James to the New King James to the Bishop's Bible to you name it. And we have it in the palm of our hands. We can go online to places like blueletterbible.org and, and every translation of the Bible is there. And so it, it's available. You, you could, if you Google how to get a free Bible... There'd be several hundred responses and you put in your name, you put in your address and somebody will ship you a Bible. It's just that easy for us to have God's word in our hand at this point. The question isn't, do we have it? The question is, are we taking advantage of the richness of God's word we have in our day? If we are to be able to refute the deception of the spirit of the Antichrist, we must be diligent workers who can accurately handle God's truth. Now, there's a couple of ways we can make ourselves be diligent in this. One is just to have a regular, systematic, disciplined study of the Word. Uh, if you go out there on the table in the foyer, uh, first of the year I put out, uh, I think he says his name is Shane's, Bible reading plan. It's just read the Bible in a year. Four chapters a day. You read through the Bible in a year. You read through the Old Testament once. You read through Psalms twice. You read through the New Testament twice. At four chapters a day. If you don't spend a lot of time, I mean, if you don't take notes and things, you can do that in maybe 30 minutes a day. And you could read through the whole Bible in a year. I mean, and, and you don't have to use that one. You can get on version, and it's on there. Or version has, I don't know, probably 40 read the Bible in a year plans. You could Google, and, and Google has 10 billion read the Bible in a year plans. Or maybe you think that's a year's too much. I would never be able to read the Bible in five years. Those plans exist. I mean, the number, or just start. I'm going to start in Matthew, and I'm going to read two or three chapters in Matthew today. And I'll read through the Gospels. And I mean, I, I cannot overstate the importance of having a regular, disciplined, systematic study of God's Word. The number of ways to do it is, is innumerable. But you, you must 
do it. I mean, that, that's all, literally all it takes is doing it. You don't have to have a plan. You don't have to have anybody else do it. You, you can do it on your own. But whatever we do, we must, if we're going to be that, we must have a plan. We must have a systematic, disciplined, regular way we study God's Word. Just for general knowledge. Another way is to study by topics. So a topical study is you pick a topic and you see what the Bible says about it all throughout. Now, if we go back to this issue, the Bible is for doctrine, for rebuke, for teaching, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Well, you could just say, okay, what's the truth about Jesus? I want to know who He is and what He's like. And so you just study everything we're told about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. Or what's the Bible say about baptism? So we read everything the Bible says about baptism. What's the Bible say? What are some hot button issues in our day? Right? Well, what's the Bible say about those issues? Let's get into the Bible and see what it says. I mean, the, the number of ways to do a topical study are, are also numerous. And you can do it in a way... That you're building yourself on the authority of it by saying, I want to know what does the Bible say about this issue that's it's a big issue in our culture right now. And I want to study and see everything it has. And then if you have like a reference Bible, mine has references in the middle. Follow those references. See what, what does God's Word say about this topic in multiple places. So you're getting a, a broad range and a broad idea of, of how God's Word speaks about this issue. However you do it, you just have to do it. I mean, and, and this takes time. There, there, is, there is no substitute for time. There's not. Bible for dummies is not going to help. It takes time. A college course on the Bible is not going to help. It, it takes time. I, I like devotions on version. I read several at a time, but they're not going to do it. You, it. It takes time and it takes effort. Those are the two things it takes to be a diligent worker who's not ashamed and can accurately handle the word of truth. And there is no shortcut. There is no fast way to do it. It is time and effort. But we must put it in because the Bible is a weapon. Isn't that what the Bible says? It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How much time you figure a Roman soldier spent learning how to swing a sword and fight battles? I don't, I don't know. But as an infantry soldier, an American infantry soldier, I can tell you that when it came to use a, know how to use a rifle, we spent hours and hours and hours. And it's the most basic task an infantry soldier learns how to shoot a rifle, but we never outgrew it. At basic training, we learn how to squeeze a trigger and how to get a sight picture and how to hit targets. And we graduate basic training. We go on and are real soldiers and we get to our unit and they issue us a rifle. And guess the first thing they do? They take us to a range and make sure we know how to squeeze the trigger, get a sight picture, can hit the targets. And then we put it up. And then a few weeks later, we get them out again. I couldn't tell you how many thousands of rounds I threw down range as an infantry soldier. Over and over and over and over and over. Because it takes time and effort to master a weapon. It takes time and effort to master God's Word. And if we are not willing to put in the time and effort, we will be misled. And that can sound like that's an overly strong statement, but I was reading yesterday Luke, Luke's Gospel. Satan comes to tempt Jesus. Jesus says, it is written. Do you know what Satan did right after that, that sneaky rascal? He quoted Scripture to Jesus. The devil himself can use God's Word to deceive and destroy people. The Spirit of the Antichrist doesn't have to come as something weird. The Spirit of the Antichrist can come as a person with a copy of God's Word just like the one we use ourselves and say, well, this is what this means. Well, now, how am I going to know if that's the Spirit of the Antichrist or if that's real? If I'm not, if put forth the effort 
and the diligence to be sure I can properly handle the word. Listen, just because somebody says the Bible says, don't take them at their face value. Don't take me at my face value. Study. See if I'm right. If I'm wrong, tell me. If somebody says the Bible says, be sure it really says it. Because it's easy enough to say, well, yes, the Bible's the authority for my life. But it's something entirely different to say, here, right here, thus says the Word of God. We need to be not afraid of those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, we should fear Him as able to destroy body and soul in hell. I'm going to fear God and not man, because that's what Jesus said right here. If we're going to be able to turn and point, we have to be diligent workers. When we don't know God's truth, we open ourselves up to Satan's deceptions. If I don't know 2 plus 2 equals 4, I'm going to believe 2 plus 2 equals something. And I'm either going to make that up myself, or I'm going to believe the first person who comes along and tells me what it equals. It's the same with spiritual truth. If I don't know the answer about who Jesus is, what He's like, salvation and eternity, I will either make it up myself or the enemy of my soul, the deceiver and the liar, the one who seeks to destroy me, He will come along and He will gladly supply that answer. The only way I'm going to know it came from the spirit of the Antichrist is because I know the truth. If we want to be able to stand in the evil day, if we want to be sure we're not those who worship the beast, who does signs and wonders, who dies and rises from the dead, if we want to be sure we're not one of those who fall for this then or now, we better be sure we know the Word. Let's all stand as our musicians come forward.